Hello, my name is Dave Nielsen. I head up the Subsurface community for Drumio. We just finished Subsurface Live and we're now beginning our podcast. And we have today our first guest, James, otherwise known as JD Long. He's a quantitative risk manager at a reinsurance company. JD, welcome to the program. Hey, Dave. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Now, I know that uh, you know we haven't met before today and uh, what really uh, got us going on this is your tweet that you had talked about some troubles and trails you were uh, running across getting some of your uh, queries to run. And um, so, you know, we wanted to kick off this podcast by having someone with real experience talking about everyone faces. So uh, thanks again for joining us. Where are you calling in from? You bet. I'm, uh, I'm calling in from Richmond, Virginia, here in my home office, office in Richmond. And, and it's funny you'd mentioned the tweet, because I think <clears throat> one of the complaints with a lot of social media platforms, you know, especially LinkedIn, but to some degree Twitter, Twitter is a lot of, uh, I don't know, self-promotion of people talking about how everything always works and how smart they are. My sort of uh, MO on Twitter is kind of the inverse of that. I do a lot of talking about what's painful, what isn't working, what I thought would work one way, but when I got into it, it actually worked another way. So, um, you know, I, I feel like the, the process, I would call it learning out loud. Usually it's me learning to try to figure out how to do something. And I do that out, out loud, right? And you sort of stumbled into the middle of me talking about how, you know, in effect, if you, if you read promos or read... LinkedIn post, it looks like all this stuff should be easy and it's not. Yeah, it can be a better introduction. And by the way, if you want to follow JD, you can go to his Twitter handle. It's C Mastication. Uh, and you've got quite a few followers there. So what's your background? What do you do other than like tweet and get lots of followers? So my background is um, I'm trained as an agricultural economist, uh, or as I like to joke, the, uh, the original uh, data scientist. And of course, the physicist will argue with me over that, right? But yeah. it's good fun anyway, because we've been doing quantitative work with dirty data, trying to solve numerical problems using sort of coding tools for a long time. As a matter of fact, um, you know, the SAS came out of NC State where they were using it in the College of Agriculture, right, for analyzing field trials of crops and things like that. So agriculture has a long history of, uh, of analytics. Now, I came through agricultural economics programs, did a lot of work in crop insurance, ended up in a reinsurance company that insures insurance companies. And I think a lot of folks have seen the XKCD cartoon where he talks about like the relative value of studying Pearl like one summer when he was in 10th grade or something and how that's disproportionately high uh, value compared to you know all the other things including advanced mathematics that he did. Well, my learning Pearl in 10th grade was learning stochastic modeling um, and, and I learned Monte Carlo modeling partially because I was bad at probability. And so I started building what I later would learn was basically Monte Carlo simulations to teach myself probability because I could figure out how to use Excel and do that. And it made the uh, learning of probability make more sense, probability and statistics. I had no idea that I would be damn near 50 and still doing basically stochastic modeling. Uh, I had no idea that it, it was applicable in the world of finance and that whole companies were built on effectively building up stochastic models of, of their business in order to ensure that they have enough capital. But here I am living the dream, I guess. Sometimes you get lucky at early age and you, uh, you know, land on a jet stream that takes you far. 
Yeah. Everyone remembers their first. And I remember mine. Mine was just Excel. You know, that was all. Yeah. I, I shouldn't, you know, I should claim some other clever programming language, but it was Excel. And it was I, absolutely Excel for me too. It was Excel and then SAS, right? I learned uh, regression analysis uh, in SAS. And then, you know, later for me, it was R and Python and databases and SQL and, and all of that. Yeah. Nice. Well, good. Well, for your job, like what do you right. typically do? And, and if you don't mind, like where do you work and, and what do you typically yeah. do? All right. So I work for, for Renaissance Re, a Bermuda-based reinsurance company. And, and my discussion here is I'm not representing them. I'm going to share a bunch of strongly opinionated views, right? That's my personality. These are not Renry views. And if you hear someone else from Renry talk, they may have different opinions and that's okay. Uh, so these are my opinions, but a lot of it has been picked up in the context of, of working in quantitative risk management in, in Renaissance Re. So by quantitative risk management, we mean sort of the intersection of uh, sort of quantitative finance, managing of, of capital. Like the main thing that reinsurance reinsurers have is a very large pool of capital, but we got to make sure it's big enough uh, to cover all of the, the, the disasters that might fall upon the world. So we're insuring insurance companies. We got to make sure we understand those risks. And we don't want to hold too much capital though, because then we get a too low return on capital for our shareholders. So I live in that world of how much capital is enough but not too much because we want a good return on capital because that makes us good stewards of the capital that our uh, shareholders have, have, have allowed us to use. So that's the world we're kind of living in. We, we uh, pride ourselves on having an independent view of risk, meaning we don't use just a model that's created by other people. We have our own models for every risk uh, that we take. We have our own representation and we're able to aggregate all the risk we take all over the globe into one unified model and understand it to make sure we have the right amount of capital. So everything I do is from the individual deals and moving data around for that, that could be quite small, might be small enough that it's only in Excel. And then we put that into our integrated system, or it could be a very large mammoth simulation. Like I think you and I are gonna talk about a little later where we have billions and billions of rows of data and we're trying to do something with that. And that's kind of where, where you and I crossed was me kind of complaining about that not being the solved problem that it seems like some folks would like to us to think it is. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what attracted me to this uh, topic or your uh, tweet. Um, and, and just, I would imagine that once you take on a new risk and you do your calculation before you commit to that risk, <clears throat> that you're, uh, that, that's, you're probably having to recalculate that and reassess that ongoing. It's not like you just do it once and then you just write it out till the end of the, the uh, contract. Well, especially what you what we want to understand is how would other contracts we take on interact with that risk? And by that, I mean, you know, if you have a lot of risks that are positively correlated with that, um, that has one thing. If we have risks that are uncorrelated or maybe even negatively correlated, all of this kind of goes back to that question I raised at the beginning or that question I had of, do we have enough capital or do we have too much capital? Well, it depends on if your risks are negatively correlated, positively correlated or uncorrelated because that's the whole make a portfolio, right? That's, that's uh, needs less capital than the individual pieces. Um, so yeah, everything we read now, we may not change our view of risk of a deal, but we certainly change the view of risk of the portfolio. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about the whole portfolio. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what class of problems are you actually handling yourself? Like as a part of your job or, you know, just, just across your career, what, what kind of class you talked about uh, stochastic modeling, but can you elaborate on that? 
Yeah. So what I have done a lot of in my past, and I, I do less of it now, but let's take the agricultural space. If I was at a agricultural crop insurance company and we were designing a new product, uh, you know, a new uh, insurance for farmers to insure their crops. And I'm not an, I'm not the kind of guy who models the insuring of barns. The actuaries have that really wrapped up. They understand the property, traditional property risk, and their tools are really good for that. So I got not a lot to add. What I've got to, uh, knowledge to add is, is how do you think about um, field losses? So losses and, and damage in yield potential. The thing that is so unusual about that is it's a catastrophic, highly correlated uh, risk. There are idiosyncratic events that can happen, like an individual creek gets out, there's hail in a certain part of a county. Those are pretty idiosyncratic. If you had a big national portfolio, those could be uh, managed by diversification. But an example of a highly correlated systemic event is a Midwest drought, so like 2012. So if you're a crop insurance company, and you're thinking about your exposure to, to risk in the US, you're gonna have a whole bunch of years that run profitable. And maybe even they just vary from mildly profitable to very profitable. But one year out of let's say 20 or 30, uh, you're gonna have a huge disaster. And so you've either gotta have enough capital to back that huge disaster and pay all the claims, or you've gotta have a reinsurance partner behind that to uh, help cover you in those shortfalls. And so what I would do is build stochastic models of, for example, in the US, you know, 10,000, 40,000, 100,000 hypothetical years. And it would model every single state's production, all their yields in the various major crops and the fluctuation in prices and build up a unified view that says, what do we think? How much, how much capital are we gonna need? Is this product profitable? Because it's easy to design a product that looks profitable the last 10 years, but will lose so much money that one in 20, one in 30, that you can't make it up in the years in between. That's an unprofitable product. But if you're just looking at five years of data, it can be super deceptive. And it looks like you're making money hand over fist until you lose, you know, 50 years worth of data uh, every 20 years. You know, that's not a profitable model. So I build the models that, that answer those questions. So the uh, old farmer, farmer's uh, almanac is, is not really good enough anymore? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> let, me, let me give you a great modeling example from crop world. I just talked to one of my analysts through this. Crop yields are always, uh, have historically been, been upward sloping, right? Since the industrial revolution, they get a little bit higher yield potential every year. That'll arc out eventually, you know, subject to water constraints or something, but it's, it's been pretty, uh, pretty increasing steadily. And I'll periodically have modelers want to come to me and say, uh, we can basically model forecast crop yields based on, uh, based on the, the weather. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. That's a hard problem. I've actually worked on trying to solve that. And they'll say, oh, we've done it. And historically, uh, you know, the R squared of the model is like 75%. I'm like, that's great. Uh, do you take that trend out before you do your modeling? Or is that trend in your modeling. Oh, we have a term in there for the modeling. I'm like, okay, so that's 70% of your R squared. 70% of the variation is just explained by the straight linear line. I don't care about that. Show me the lift you can make above that linear trend that we can all look at the data and see because you're adding no value there, right? And when you take the trend out, nobody can model it better than you know 20 or 30% R squared or something like that is really good if anybody can do that. So, um, you know, it's a lot of domain knowledge 
goes into uh, into thinking about these models, right? And so that was why I was so pleased when we got this term data science a number of years ago, is it kind of explains what so many of us do, where we bring this big bucket of domain knowledge in with these programming tools and analytical tools and mash them together. Oh, good. <laughs> that term seems to get watered down, but I'm glad it's uh, being used uh, effectively as well. Um, and, and so like the tools that you use, are you using, you said Excel, you, R, you, Spark, for, do you ever do like machine learning or is it mostly SQL and Excel? Like what, what kind of, generally what kind of tools are you using? So I, I think about it like a tooling pipeline. And as we go up this pipeline that I'm about to describe in an organization like ours, we'll have fewer and fewer people progressing up the pipeline. You know, like everybody in business needs to be able to use um, Excel, right? It's sort of the table stakes of doing anything. So you got to be able to use it and, and do, do something decent in Excel. And we have varying levels of users of that. Uh, anybody that claims to do any kind of analytics needs to know SQL as well, right? They need to know at least basic, how do you run a query, how to read a query, maybe even how to alter a query and ultimately how to write their own query from scratch to get some data that they want. Everybody sort of sort of needs that. So the, the, the domain, you know, Excel is this many users and SQL is, you know, this many, just a few less. And then we start beyond that, we'll get into tools like, um, you know, building your own uh, cube or something, right? And and that's a much more restricted. So usually we get like users who can reasonably use a cube, right? Can, can, and cubes are on the way out, but that's an example of a technology. You might be a user of that, but not a creator of that. And then we start getting into, okay, at some point you kind of run out of steam with those tools or you create Rube Goldberg machines. <laughs> um, and for, for that's the least vulgar term, you know, go right. rodeo is another one of my favorite. There's others that are more colorful metaphors. Um, those, when we start seeing those, we've got somebody who needs to learn to code. And that's like the rumble strip to say they're veering off of kind of the road they should be on. So, you know, those folks, I like to help them get a programming language under their belt, either Python or R, both make a lot of sense, depending on exactly the context. We have a lot of systems that use Python. So we have professional Python developers in the house. So in our organization, that kind of makes a little sense that you might want to do that because you got a lot more people you can ask questions. I, of course, wrote the R cookbook. I do a lot of stuff in R. There's a handful of people, some of our actuaries who are doing things in R. So we have a small user community that, that does that as well. I like how much quick analytics I can do in R, especially tidyverse, dplyr, those tooling, uh, really fast. And I can write it really fast, right? And it's super readable. I, I have analysts who don't code in R who can read my code and understand it. And that is huge, that it's so easily understood. They can read my R code way easier than they can read um, Pandas code in my experience. And that's super nice when interacting with business people and they can just go to my code and make sense out of it. That's a huge win. And then we start getting into specialized needs, right? So the specialized needs come when you, you know, have a large joint, something larger than one machine. Now, fortunately, what we can do on one machine has been growing at a really nice clip my whole career. So problems that would have been big data distributed, you know, 15 years ago are now run on my MacBook Pro on my desk problems. And that's great because that means I can just use R Python and just chug through them. And that's often the first thing I tell people when they're like, I need a big data tool. I'm like, are you sure? And they're like, yeah, I got, you know, 10 million records. I'm like, 
are you sure? Because <laughs> still, I'm not, I'm still not hearing anything that convinces me you can't put that all in RAM on your MacBook Pro and just crank on it, right? So what folks think is big and what is actually big, there's often a delta there. Now, we, we have some things that we know are legitimately, we can't shove them in the RAM on one machine. So we go up to, you know, the easiest thing to do first is go to the biggest machine that uh, Amazon EC2 will give you one of and shove it through there, right? Uh, that's kind of nice, but you know you're going to have scaling constraint, right? Because at some point you're going to be, I am as big as the one largest machine that Amazon will let me rent. Um, or, you know, and even on that, you're going to need to be multi-threaded or, you know, something. So that's got some challenges to doing it that way. So we look, we use a handful of, uh, of distributed tooling. And part of the stuff you bumped into me doing was working on a proof of concept internally for, now I'm on the business side, not on the IT side. So what we did is we took two guys that understood the business problem, myself and my colleagues, same team. And then we took two or three guys from IT who are developers and understand certain distributed systems. And we threw us all in a sandbox together and said, let's try to do a minimum viable product, basically a, a minimum illustrative, a minimal meaningful uh, example. Right, so it's not a minimum viable product. We're not producing product. What we're producing is an example of a workflow that is of the scale we might want to use in practice to do a specific piece of work. So we're effectively spiking one little piece of an algorithm on multiple different platforms. And this is an exercise and a muscle that's terribly important to build inside of organizations because we discover two things. Every time we do it, we discover the two classes of things. We don't understand our problem as well as we thought we did. And we definitely didn't understand the technology as well as we thought we did going in. And so every time we do this sort of thing, we learn stuff. And by also forcing the IT guys to partner up with the business people, uh, they get to know each other better because they've been forced to work on a group project together. And they also both understand the other team's concerns better and it builds trust. And it's unusual to be in an analytics discussion and someone bring up trust in the context of one person trusting a colleague, but that's a real constraint in modern organizations of, you know, can I get good clear answers from my IT guy or is the business guy gonna be an asshole if I ask him a technical question or, or admit to him that I don't know something about the business, is he gonna make a big scene about that and make me feel stupid as an IT developer, right? And so by pairing us together the way we're doing, we're building trust and they're learning that, you know, we want them to know what they know well and we wanna teach them the rest. And they see how eager we are to give them business domain and how there's no penalty for not knowing something in the business. We love to teach them about more about the business and we start to build trust. And likewise, you know, I, I literally told in, in a chat discussion yesterday with my team, I'm like, here's what I think I'm seeing, but y'all call me on this if you think that this isn't right. And they will learn to trust us that we don't think we have everything figured out we, we're basically all raising hypothesis. So anyway, the whole, the whole point is we solve technical problems. We understand the tooling and the problem we're trying to solve, and we're building trust between our teams. And that's part of what makes us a high-functioning organization able to do hard things, in my opinion. No, that sounds great. And it's also you know, so much more enjoyable to work on a complicated project where you're not having to stumble through so many details that you know are not your domain experience, and you get to learn from somebody who's already done it. That's a, a wonderful experience. 
you know, I, I have seen in, in COVID, you know, we're, we're using Microsoft Teams, other people use Slack, uh, there, there's pros and cons, but the idea of having a, a forum where folks can brain dump in, like, and especially where we're a little bit async because we got people in Europe and people in the US. So we've got about half a day of overlap. And then I can come in in the morning and see some of their brain dump of what they've been doing. They can come in, they, they see some of what I did after they went home the night before. And then we have a few hours and we can do face-to-face meetings during that and catch up and talk about the things. But it's like, it's basically like being able to read their I think of when I did, uh, you know, science and we had lab notebooks. It's a little bit like reading the lab notebook of someone else. And then we have a meeting to talk about it. And that work cycle has worked pretty good for us, I think. Now, I, I tend to learn out loud more than other folks, but maybe I hope that I make them more comfortable sharing lots of stuff because I share, you know, a very emotional roller coaster constantly when we're learning these tools. Well, you just said work cycles. That reminds me, this is what we came to talk about, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you got this team together and now right. you're putting together uh, the, the MVE. Um, right. Oh, I like MVE. Yeah. And then, uh, and so what is that work cycle like? And mm-hmm. what, yeah. So talk about your pipeline or your work cycle or whatever, however you describe it. So we started with knowing, you know, what blob of data we wanted to start with. And we knew we had some problems with that data or not problems like quality problems, like uh, its nature was gnarly. And the gnarly nature is it has natural groupings and those groupings are highly imbalanced. Some of the groupings have a few thousand records and few have millions of records. And in most distributed systems, there's kind of an expectation to partition your data across the worker nodes, you know, and it's often best to partition by the thing you're gonna join on. Our very first join is highly imbalanced. It's joining highly imbalanced data to other highly imbalanced data, and it just makes a mess right out of the gate. So my very first spike I did, I used synthetic data, and it didn't have this balanced problem. And I I was working in Spark, and a bunch of stuff at really high record counts went really fast. And I was like, this is gonna be a freaking breeze. We're gonna blow this problem up. Like we're hoping to get 30 minute runtime. I'm gonna get sub minute runtime. This is gonna be fantastic. I'm gonna get a promotion and be a hero. And this is just gonna be fantastic. And then I went flat and hit reality as soon as I started trying to do this with real data. And this is like where I say, we learn about the tools and we learn about our problem. I knew we were a little imbalanced, but I didn't understand the implications of that data imbalance when it comes time to work with a distributed system. You know, so I've fought that in Spark and then uh, we, we've done a spike in Dremio and, and Dremio handles, handles the imbalance a lot better because the, the way it's underlying technology works. And then uh, we're working on it in, in Dask as well. And I was kind of griping that, you know, step one in Dask, I found a little harder than step one in uh, Spark, but just step one, right? They, they have a lot of pros and cons after you get past step one. Um, you know, Dask feels kind of nice from Python. Spark feels a little bit like I was remote controlling a JVM from Python, because I am. Um, you know, so like I'm seeing these trade-offs and I'm learning the trade-offs between the tools. So what we immediately did is said, let's, let's, and it's hard to like subsample this. If you have the, the, the real problem is this weird shape of our data and the volume, 
we quickly learned that subsamples can be really deceptive. So we just said, let's work on the whole thing. So we took, and, and instead of trying to use synthetic data, we're trying to use a subsample of the data, we realized we got, we got to spike this thing using the whole uh, data corpus that we're going to try to move through this workflow. And that made our progress really slow. Uh, but we felt it was real important to do that because we were afraid we would just go down these misleading roads that overfit the workflow to the sample of the data we had. And then it's when we start using non-sample data, we realize that that is a path that, that won't work at all. So, you know, we, we've spent a lot of uh, AWS dollars uh, making sure we could do this, you know, in all these different platforms, right? And, and we learn about the assumptions the tools make. And I've been sort of shocked that some of the assumptions that are built into some of the tools, but we wouldn't have learned it if we had just maybe read a book or you know, watch some videos or read blog posts. We had to actually try it with big workloads. So, and so you, I remember in your tweet somewhere you talked about uh, using, <clears throat> I think it was like Kubernetes or Fargate or something like that, which uh, you know to me doesn't sound like a typical platform, but it's something that kind of seems exciting, right? Because when you can yeah. go out like that you feel like you can crunch through a lot more data quickly. And so I was just kind of wondering like what, if you could talk about that, what, what yeah. that experience was like. So, so what we, when, when I was, uh, when I was spiking out Spark, I did that using um, Amazon's Elastic MapReduce, which will let you stand up a Spark cluster, you know, with certain parameters and leave it running. Uh, and that was pretty handy. That was kind of just a shortcut to standing up Spark on EC2 because that's what it does. Um, and and that was pretty nice. When we went to spike out uh, Dask, uh, well, there isn't. You can't flip a different switch. I wish you could over in Elastic Map Reduce and get you know Dask instead of uh, instead of Spark. That would be interesting. Uh, it's kind of a different ecosystem. So it looked like the least friction route for us to get a whole bunch of workers uh, stood up and able to interact. Now we have, we have a hosted internal Jupyter lab and, and that's my like preferred way to do uh, a lot of work. We have, we have a Jupyter lab and I have R installed on there and Python installed on there for all of our analysts. So we're all using shared uh, kernels. So we have predictable package management, which is a hairy ball as everyone knows. So th that's nice. And so what I wanted my like minimum useful tool is I want a Dask cluster that I can access from our internal. Now it's internal to us, it's hosted on EC2, but our internal uh, Jupyter Lab environment. And uh, my IT and DevOps team uh, infrastructure folks said, okay, your fastest route is uh, uh, Fargate on, on ECS. And they gave me a code snippet that would do that. They set up the account permissions, which is hairball. And we kind of figured that out together. And so I had this. Now, I found that, that ECS has like, something is a little bit non-deterministic with ECS. It makes me uncomfortable. So I have jobs that I'll run and they'll take three minutes, five minutes. I restart the cluster and I run the exact same jobs on the exact same number of nodes and it takes 15 minutes. And I'm like, this is unexpected. And I was talking to some folks recently that appears to be some shared resources in ECS, and I'm not sure if it's network, 
if it's the host machines they're on or something, but these things can happen. So we're realizing that there's challenges there. Like we took that path because my, my IT folks could get it inside of our uh, virtual network and get it connected and plumbed in the easiest. They thought we realized we need to be doing EC2 machines so that we get slightly more isolated. We, you know, we want to be running nodes big enough that we don't have to worry about like sharing uh, the, the contention because we're sharing hardware with someone else. So, and we also want to run nodes that are bigger than uh, Fargate on ECS will allow us to do. They have a certain size minimum. We want to be something like four to six times as big as that. The problem is that imbalance that I mentioned at the beginning of the problem statement. That imbalance, everything gets a lot easier if you can get all of one group on a node. And if you got to split that, you get a lot of data shuffling over the network. So in general, we want to run on fewer nodes that are much bigger so that we reduce the probability of having to blow our data over the, uh, over the network. And what size data are you talking about? Um, let's see, I, don't, I can't pull it off the top of my head in, in gigs. I should be able to, but I'm having a little trouble here. Um, but it's uh, tens of billions of rows. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like the first thing we do immediately right out of that, or out of the gate, is we join that, uh, you know, big billions of row table to a, you know, 100,000 row table in a mini to mini join. So we go from, I don't know, you know, 30 billion to 75 billion. It actually produces, you know, it, it blows it out and we end up with more after the first join. And then we do computational steps on that and, and bring it back down. But that's kind of the problem space where we started is can we just solve it? You know, I have colloquially called this internally the big join. Uh, I used to call it the big ass join. And then we started writing it down and I felt real uncomfortable. So I renamed it the big join. And so we, we, we have the big join as sort of our first spike on any technology that we're kind of trying out. And, and where were you, like what, what's, were you storing this on S3 and like what format were you storing your files? Yeah, so, so we, we started, we had our, our first ex, uh, experiment with this was uh, actually data that was already in Redshift. And, but we, we know that our data before it goes into Redshift is, is in S3. So we said, well, let's back up and say, if we didn't load this into Redshift, right? Because Redshift is great and it's neat, but the problem is you got to load your data in Redshift, which takes a while. Um, so we said, okay, if we're going to use these other tools that decouple storage from compute, uh, this would be sitting in S3. So let's just put you know, one blob worth of data over in S3 and we'll spike it out uh, on our different platforms, you know, all from the same source. So we control the upstream process, uh, not the team I'm on, but I mean, you know, corporately, it's an internal process that produces these uh, large files. So we could have it shaped differently if we need to, or compressed differently, or, you know, chunked differently. Uh, but right now we're sort of assuming that just appears in S3, and then we've got to consume it for a downstream process. Okay, so if we start putting this all together, you, you get your data coming in, you put it on S3, you can help decide how that's going to be structured or stored or compressed, et cetera. Right. Then, then you get your choice of tools to try different right. techniques. You've got your Spark, you mentioned, you've got your um, Dask, you've got Dremio, those are three that you tried. And did you actually try it through um, 
the Amazon service as well? So uh, we did it. We did it in Redshift. Uh, what I haven't done is, uh, I think it's Athena. Is that the Amazon service that sits right on top of S3 that's queryable with SQL? I think it's yeah, Athena. that's another one. Yeah. I'm sure we'll get corrected in the comments if I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, we haven't done it with that. That's on my spike list for down the road. So let, let's do a little bit on the process here. So we will save all of the data, all of the code, all of our notes from this, this sort of proof of concept we do. And I fully anticipate over the next couple of years, we'll have two or three more technologies that we want to try to uh, say, are they more performant or what are the trade-offs then? We're gonna run them through the exact same proof of concept we did with these three. And that's super important. And I've seen organizations not do this, right? They'll do a little spike and then they throw away the data and they throw away the code and they keep a memo or something that says what they discovered. And that's just only marginally better than useless uh, because you can't benchmark something else against it later. So what we wanna do is keep everything else the same and then we're gonna hopefully be able to build our systems with loosely coupled enough pieces so that if the technology chains out from under us and something else becomes the better way to do that, we can pull that piece out without being so tightly coupled to it that we have to tear the Rube Goldberg machine apart, right? So we try to keep a reasonable amount of loose coupling. Now that's one of the things I like about dropping data in S3 is that's a pretty loose couple. If, if process one drops in S3 and process two picks it up and process two, two barfs out in a different S3 bucket and that's the workflow, you can replace S2 as long as step two, as long as you produce the same output file for the downstream process, who cares what's in step two? That's a great amount of coupling. And that's one of the things that it's like, one of the things I rant about on Twitter regularly is putting business logic in reporting tools. So for example, having all these business logic steps in Tableau, where you calculate uh, complicated business logic or in Power BI, it's a horrible idea because you can't reuse it for other processes. And one of the things we've looked at is how do we keep all that logic in more like an ETL tool, store it in the, the data, and then great, then use Tableau or Power BI or whatever to access that data. But if we wanted to access that same data with the logic already calculated, we can do it with Python, we can do it with R because it's just data in a database. Um, and I feel like a lot of the tools are really tempting users to put their business logic in the wrong place because the tool then becomes real sticky because yeah. you can't change the tool out if your business logic is all trapped in there. And it borders on immoral, in my opinion, to get users to do something that is against their best interest, but it keeps them on their platform. Yeah, yeah, that definitely is a good trick to uh, keep you on the platform. And that's that's a good reason, as you mentioned, to separate your storage from your compute. Uh, I love that. Love that. That's one thing. That's basically one of our core tenets of the subservice community is you get to have more choice and then there's more variety of options to help you solve your problems. Uh, I think it was um, Werner Vogels of AWS who said, you know, putting your data there uh, help gives you the opportunity to use future uh, technologies that you don't even know about yet, right? So it makes, gives you, uh, makes you future proof, you know? Um, okay, so I think we've got a pretty good summary of, of that steps. We talked about the, the workflow and you talked about uh, not keeping the, logic in the tooling and uh and so that logic would go where would that logic go 
So I think the logic needs to live in code and that code needs to be in a source code repository. That's my guiding principle. Now, in my case, it's Python code, typically in an automated process like that, maybe R, but typically Python and it's stored in GitHub. Um, I'm a little flexible on like, you know, internally, we have some in Python, some in R, we've got .NET guys that are closer to certain of our internal applications. That's cool, put your code in Git, uh, document your code, you know, code comments, read me some basic code quality things. Uh, make sure you have entries in the wiki pointing people to where that is. Uh, you know, but I don't care too much about the specifics of that as much as I care about the principles of it being findable. So, you know, one of the things that's our, our team, I'm in a team called Risk Solutions. We try to do things that maybe all the time, but our definition of our job is doing things our systems weren't initially designed to do. Getting answers that where there is no button just to click to get that answer, right? That's the sort of stuff we do. So I'm always wanting to like read somebody's code to figure out how something was calculated, right? So you gotta have that in there and you gotta have code that's accessible uh, for it to be consumed. You know, I think this is one of the things I'm seeing really interesting in this sort of data. Data fabric is the next buzzword that's gonna mean nothing pretty soon. And I think it's an absolute kind of BS marketing term at some level and some level I think it's fantastic. So I'm, I'm cognitively torn. What's fantastic about it is we're basically telling people when you publish data, it's not for a single use. It's not just the data for this application. And the only way anybody's gonna interact with it is to, to use this application. You're basically saying I'm publishing data the first customer of this data is this application that we had in mind, but here's the documentation and here's the, the quality standards for this data. Other people can connect to it for other processes. Okay, we've been doing that for years. We just didn't have a service contract, conceptual service contract with the internal people who were producing the, the other data. They were just doing it and we'd sneak into SQL Server and slurp out what we want, right? Kind of on the sly. Um, and the doing the data fabric approach seems like we're just formalizing that and basically making the, the defining the ground rules. Now, you, you probably know more about that space than I do and I'm sure our listeners do. Uh, but I love the idea of loose coupling and define what the data is and what the rules around it are and sort of make that available for more users. That's fantastic. Yeah, I think as we become more and more comfortable with uh, reuse and splitting apart things that that's, you know, that's what's going to be more uh, valuable and, and needed. So, yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. It's like great marketing term. Uh, another marketing term is like data mesh. That's another yeah. one. Here. And uh, I have absolutely uh, zero idea of the difference between data mesh and data fabric and all that. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, at the high level, all I can tell is that the data fabric seems to be a little bit more focused on specific tools and workflows. Data mesh seems to be a higher level um, and, and involving cultural issues as well around okay. organizational change, that kind of thing. So there, there's a little oh, bit cool. Different. One of them kind of reminds me more of like specifically microservices type of thing, but for data, the other one seems to be more like DevOps, right? It's more okay. kind cool. of... Uh, squishy you know mm -hmm. um that's how i that's how i understand it but um uh, okay so have we left anything out here in your workflow or in your pipeline process i think we've covered quite a bit here the, we've, the covered, we've covered a lot of ground yeah we have a ton uh and then the results like you 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 um you're saying you know document it whatever so other people can use it but like what do you actually do with the resulting data is there is a result yeah. data that comes out of this and what do you do with that Absolutely. So it's going to go into a 
I don't know, a destination source for consumption. And now if that may be like one of the things we're looking at is some of this may end up in uh, Dremio with Power BI on top of it, for example. That would be a use case we, case we kind of like. So that's a kind of a weird workflow. So let, let me mention that you are affiliated with Dremio. So let me mention one of the weird things. I, I think about Dremio a little differently than like your, your sales and marketing folks in that there's a use case in Dremio for um, traditional data lake, put a bunch of data here, plop a viewer of some kind on top of it, Power BI, Tableau, something else, and kind of access that data right there and, and sort of, you know, we append to that and that becomes our, our view to our data. The, the other thing that we're kind of seeing is if I have a problem that in a coded workflow, so I'm in Python and I have a problem where I find myself, I got a bunch of, of parquet files and I need to do, say, queries and joins. I need to do SQ, stuff that can be expressed in SQL. Um, the fastest way to do that is Dremio right now that I can find uh, if the problem is in, can be expressed in SQL, right? If I want to do an OLS regression on all the nodes, Dremio is not the right tool, right? And nobody thinks it is. But if all, what I want to do is just say, oh, give me certain subsets and the data is in those parquet files, it's really hard to beat just doing Dremio with that. So we, we use Dremio or looking at the possibility of using Dremio kind of upstream from code to sort of get chunks, get things that we want and do big joins in our workflow. And then we carry the workflow down and then we plop data, we blow data out at the end of the workflow process back into Dremio to do a traditional uh, data lake sort of Dremio approach, right? So we've got on the one hand, we're using it like a query appliance. And on the other hand, we're using it like the uh, data lake, like you might imagine, the, the marketing material says that's what you should do. I think it's that other use case that's so interesting and surprising to me, the one of treat it like a library for parsing and joining parquet files um, because it's the fastest version of one of them we've got. And so a lot of the nudging that I'm doing the Dremio team is make sure the uh, SQL Alchemy libraries for Python are good and fast because I'm gonna wanna do a bunch of back and forth from Python and SQL Alchemy's the way to connect to databases. So make sure those are good, make sure they're fast and make sure everything that I might wanna do uh, with standing up clusters and nodes and tearing them down, make sure I can do all that from the API because I wanna use this thing like a computational appliance. And actually it's not gonna be me, it's gonna be people who are actually good developers on our team, not people like me who, who build proof of concepts. Um, but that's like an interesting use case. And we were, we've been a little bit surprised. I didn't expect that when we started kind of playing around with Dremio. We haven't nailed these workflows down. I'm not sure this is how we're going to use it, but we're looking at these at real, real possibilities. Yeah, well, I think that speaks a little bit to the fact that performance of these types of queries has increased to the point where you can use them in more ways. Exactly, in yeah. un, kind of unexpected ways. Yeah, that's right. That's an interesting one. I hadn't thought of that. That's pretty cool. I, I, you know, one of the things I come from a database API background, and I think about like putting APIs on top of Dremio, and it's it's not necessarily the most popular thing yet, but uh, but this is kind of like that, right? You can kind of put it perhaps into a workflow where you got an input and an output, and then that feeds another input and another output. Well, uh, and and even if I'm not returning data through my API, my API to Dremio let's just say it's SQL Alchemy, right? All I'm doing is effectively passing SQL to it. 
that SQL can read from S3 and write at the end of all the workflow to S3. So I could just be using the API to go tell Dremio to do a thing and it does it all and the data never gets pumped over the database connection. The data just moves from one, one place unprocessed in S3 to a different place where it's processed. And then my workflow picks it up from there, right? Cause I got these decoupled workflows hopefully that are all abstracted with S3 buckets in the middle. And that was a workflow that I would, didn't realize was plausible or meaningful, you know, I don't know, a year ago. Nice. Well, thanks for sharing that. Uh, let's wrap it up by uh, getting your thoughts on, you know, the, the state of the workflow today. Where are some of the challenges that you think, you know, the community needs to address? Or, you know, where are some of the um, bottlenecks that you still face that you think, like, we all would benefit from learning about and perhaps trying to address? Yeah, the, the t- two of these jump out at me really big because they've been been pain points that I've seen. And when I go talk to smart people, they have the same pain points. The, the first one is it's hard in organizations to set up permissions and roles in the cloud environments and do it in such a way that allows security, privacy, and the freedom to experiment, right? It's like, ugh, pick any two. And getting all three of those is tricky. And the right way to do that isn't immediately obvious right now. Now, it seems like some companies that are small have seemed to have some luck with that. It's kind of easy when when you got five users or whatever. Uh, And companies that push the permissions down to maybe individual team leads to parse those permissions out, um, that you lose the centralized control, but it sort of takes the friction out. It's not obvious what the right workflow is. We, we've decided to centralize it and we have a bunch of rules around it, but we, and we've realized that's so high friction that we're beginning to, now we stand up a, a sandbox that we're gonna give people more permissions, but it's got, not gonna have access to certain things. So that's a trade-off. And getting that balance right is hard. And it's hard to also choose it for another organization because it depends on what you're doing in the cloud. It depends on how sensitive the data is, and it depends on what your sensitivity to price runaways are. So it's just a hard problem. So that's a big area, getting permissions and roles right. Um, and we're, we're bumbling through it like everybody else, in my opinion, but bumbling through it, hopefully, and learning things and getting smarter, and I really think we are. The, the other thing that um, I think everybody has problems with is, you know, I mentioned in, in the in the POCs, I always learn two things, right? I learn my, things about my problem and I learn things about the tooling that I didn't expect. That speaks to the problem. The problem is we have problems we don't fully understand. The, we don't understand the nature of them. I didn't appreciate my group imbalance problem until I started using it in anger. So I didn't understand my problem. The other thing is we don't fully understand what class of problems the tooling solves. And a lot of software doesn't help us understand the class of problems. It'll tell you what it does, but you don't understand what class of problems that solve. So if I'm in a business and I've got sets of problems, which I only partially understand, how do I then go to a marketplace of ideas and figure out which of these tools will match my problem? And I swear there's whole consultancies that I really think their fundamental value add is helping companies match, understand the problem and understand what the elements of the problem are that make it hard. That's part of what I mean by understand the problem. They know what they want to do from a business point of view, no doubt in my mind. 
companies often don't understand what's hard about that workflow from a computational point of view. And then matching that with knowledge of the tools and good God, if you try to stay on top of just all the tools that AWS rolls out, like that's not a small job in and of itself. And, you know, I swear I listened to uh, a couple of podcasts like, like Corey Quinn's podcast, just to hear about things in AWS that I didn't know exist and um, kind of what they might do. And then I go try to figure out then what class of problem they solve. And those are very different questions, right? Oh, it's a messaging queue. Well, what does a messaging queue problem look like? How do I know if that's the tool I need? Um, th that, so that's problem two. So I think it's all about getting right roles and permissions and then understanding which tools apply to which problems. Very good. Yeah. And it's not just an art form. It's almost like a dark art, you know, like oh, it really is. I mean, you really get, okay. So 15 years ago, I thought all the smart people had a bunch of stuff figured out. I was pretty sure I was just not one of the smart people uh, because hey, I'm a lowly agricultural economist, right? I don't even have a computer science degree and, um, you know, I don't know anything about Fortran or C++. I've never coded in either, right? So I thought I was woefully behind. One of the things that I have discovered, and it's probably true that I'm woefully behind, but one of the things I've discovered by being active in Twitter and in an analytics community on Twitter is I will ask things like, um, in scikit-learn documentation in Python, there's this really great decision tree about like which model in scikit-learn to use to solve which problem. And it's written like a, like a flow chart. You know, it's it have this, it have that. And and I've invoked that because like square one is like, do you have more than, you know, 50 data points? If no, get more data, right? And it's so funny because so much of what I do doesn't have 50 data points. <laughs> um, and so I, I always, you know, I love referencing that. Um, but it's a decision tree. And I will periodically basically say, anybody got the decision tree like this for which AWS tool to use? And nobody has anything. <laughs> and basically what I get is 150 responses to saying, oh my God, we were just talking about this at work and saying how useful that would be because I can't parse the tooling and know which one does what and why I should use one versus the other for things like databases that look like they're very similar. Like, you know, when do I use one cloud database versus another? And so it's, I know because I have like a, a selected group of like something redonkulous, like more than 10,000 nerds uh, following me on Twitter and they don't know how to do this. It means it's not obvious and everybody hasn't figured it out. Well, consultants will be happy to hear that. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have, you have a future for a while at least. <laughs> so uh, oh, this is how, how to get data science notoriety to young uh, data scientists, right? Is make that decision tree, right? And, yeah. and <laughs> help us make sense of the world. Yeah, I wonder if AI is gonna help with that at some point. Uh, well, this has been really a real pleasure to hear you tell this story it's 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 like many little chapters uh in an overall story and um, each one of them has been useful and helpful so thank you very much for uh sharing all this with us i really appreciate it uh and if you had a closing thought what comes to mind the, the biggest thing that comes to my mind is learn out loud so, and by learn out loud, it's, you know, I say I'm on Twitter, not pretending to have the problems uh, solved. I'm saying what is hard. 
and asking other people for input, uh, do that. Don't let imposter syndrome make you think you shouldn't know, you, you shouldn't admit to not knowing something. I'm old enough to literally remember before I asked my first Stack Overflow question, asking myself, am I going to regret revealing to the world that I don't know things? <laughs> And I really felt a little bit insecure. Like, is this a good idea? Am I revealing too much of my ignorance online? And the irony is for a long time, I was the like top five question asker on the topic of R in Stack Overflow. Cause I finally decided, yes, this is actually important because other people don't know. I don't know. I'm gonna learn and I'm also gonna make other people smart, you know, learning from my ignorance. And I jumped headlong into kind of bootstrapping by asking a lot of questions in Stack Overflow about R. And it has, that, that changed my attitude to, to learning out loud. I basically, it's out there for the world to see my learning journey from where I didn't know shit to actually I own a, know a few things is, is out there and it's very public. And so I'm not insecure about saying I don't know. And that's the, the biggest advice. I give that to my new hires who work with me. I'm like, you're, you're wasting so much time by not asking questions, not admitting that you don't know something. And it's okay to ask questions, even if you feel like you should know it. Even if it's like, I think you have explained this to me before, ask again. So my biggest encouragement to people is, is always ask lots of questions, learn out loud, and always plot your data. That's an excellent recommendation to end with. So, uh, well, thank you again, uh, James, otherwise known as JD Long on, on Twitter. You're actually at uh, C Mastication. And what does that C stand for again? So I originally blogged and I haven't updated my blog in years. My blog was Cerebral Mastication. Right. And when I started Twitter, I had no idea the downside of a long handle, but, but Cerebral Mastication was too long. So I was like, I don't know, C Mastication. And then it sort of stuck. And it's funny, people have created up narratives to what does the C stand for? Because I'm not really associated with the blog anymore. And they thought it was like the C language. I don't know C. And, you know, or something else. It's, it's short for cerebral mastication, which was my blog. Uh, okay, good. Well, maybe someone will go dig that up. But um... uh, it's all still out there somewhere. <laughs> well, um, well, thank you again. I, I hope it sounds like, you know, this is a journey for you just as well as everyone else. So I hope we can have you back sometime uh you know subsurface will will be we haven't set a date yet but probably in about six months maybe we can have you come and share some more there uh but uh we definitely hope to have you involved again sometime thank you dave i really appreciate what you guys are doing and that you're you know you, you identify with a technology brand or whatever but you all are trying to bring in like lots of analytical discussion that's hugely valuable and I really appreciate that you all are sort of sort of open to that. And, and I think it makes a more open narrative. And there's just so much work that needs done in this space that we need to not have, have really highly fenced gardens. But we got to kind of talk openly about how these tools fit together, which ones solve which problems, that sort of thing. And that you all are involved with, with, with having that narrative as subservice is fantastic. I told you before we, before we started recording, you know, I've got a queue of subservice videos to watch. You guys are producing great content. For those of you listening, we're starting a newsletter, which will summarize the different talks and the articles that we put up on sub, the dremio.com slash subsurface. So please go there, subscribe to the newsletter. And when we get the podcast um, you know, series uploaded to listen to the talks, uh, you'll be able to get notified about that. Uh, and with that, thank you so care. much, Dave.
Thank you. Uh, thanks everyone listening and we'll see you on the next podcast or over at uh, the subsurface website. Thank <laughs> you.